Good morning. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Colossians. We're still in the uh, prison epistles of Paul. Remember, we left him in prison at the end of Acts. <clears throat> Over the next two years, he proceeded to write at least four letters, four of which are preserved in the Word of God. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. We're looking at the third of them this morning. Written to the uh, church at the little town of Colossae. It's about a hundred, or was, about a hundred miles east of Ephesus. Remember, you got Turkey here. Ephesus is near the coast. Colossae's inland about a hundred miles. And unlike Philippians, as we said last week, a place very near and dear to Paul's heart. We remember the Philippian jailer, Lydia, and uh, the imprisonment and so on. Paul, from the letter, we can tell, had never been to Colossae, although apparently uh, the church uh, began there under the uh, work of uh, one of the disciples, maybe Epaphras, while Paul was at uh, Ephesus for those two years. One of the brothers went and shared the gospel, and a church was started. Well, uh, there are problems. This uh, epistle really is written to counteract the growing heresy which later came to be known as Gnosticism. How many have heard of that, Gnosticism? Yeah, I figured that. Uh, it was an early heresy. Really, it's given rise to a number of false teachings that we have with us today. It was just really beginning at this time in the area. And uh, so Paul wrote this letter to counteract it. As a result, we have one of the strongest Christological letters in the New Testament in Colossians. You want to find some passages to show that Jesus is God. You need look no further than the book of Colossians. So uh, before we get into it, I just want to uh, <clears throat> teach you a little math here. Very simple. Nothing more than arithmetic. The first lesson is Jesus plus zero equals eternal life. Jesus plus X equals eternal destruction okay now if you're wondering what i mean by that you'll find out in a minute jesus plus zero equals eternal life jesus plus x equals eternal destruction uh, we saw as we went through the book of acts many of you that were here for that you remember we saw uh, although he's not named that much in the book of acts we saw the devil begin right away to try to stamp out the church as the Lord Jesus began to build his church, we saw his efforts. Remember that through the book of Acts. And uh, he, he's, through the ages, through the century, he's tried four main uh, efforts to try to undermine the church. Two from outside, two from inside. The first one he tried, the most obvious one, was from outside and a direct attack, persecution. And he's found over the centuries, generally that often backfires. Because true believers, when hit with persecution, tend to rely on the Lord more. <laughs> and so actually the church often gets stronger. So that's probably his, his weakest um, armament. <clears throat> He's learned since then to use uh, a much greater ploy from the outside, and that's the world, the cosmos, as it is in Greek in the New Testament. It's his world system, the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. It's, his, uh, it's designed by him. And uh, you could summarize that great design in one phrase. It's designed to keep people happy without God. And uh, today, probably more than ever, we see the church creeping in, uh, the, pardon me, the world creeping into the church 
so that today the church by and large profet, i'm talking about professing church now by and large has gotten into the entertainment business it's not aimed at really preaching the word of god but uh so people can have fun you know when they go to a church meeting that's the world people want to be entertained very successful ploy well from within the devil uses two main uh, tactics uh, the first one is uh, temptation uh, sin uh, encouraging grievances ultimately a split in the church <clears throat> from within happens all the time and the other <clears throat> is what we're going to be looking at this morning and that's through false teaching heresy raising up uh, false teachers who then uh, work their way into the church and uh, teach wrong things about the lord jesus about salvation about god and it's interesting false teaching heresy really has an appeal for those that aren't saved it often sounds right you know you don't believe it look at the number of people that are trapped in cults today it accounts for probably half the world's population uh i'm talking about christian cults now not not uh islam or hinduism or something like that from catholicism to seventh day adventism jehovah's witnesses mormons you name it there, there's a flavor for everyone it's interesting that um the devil's learned it's kind of like you go into uh, like home depot or someplace you want a new kitchen you know and they'll bring up this uh, little uh, display on their uh, computer there little overhead map of your kitchen and they'll you know put little boxes for cabinets and you know stoves and so on you don't like this well they take that out and draw another one or or they elongate it you know it's kind of cool kind of like plug and play you know move these things around until you find just the uh, configuration that you like you know well that's what the devil does with religion you know plug and play he does away with all those um <clears throat> inconvenient teachings in the bible first of all let's get those out of there you know hell sin even the deity of christ miracles the trinity salvation by faith alone repentance uh six-day creation the resurrection inerrancy of the scriptures Woo! let's get those out of here you know and we'll put in what you want to hear you know that's the idea and so it was already beginning uh, and he had really made inroads here in the area of Colossi, Colossi we're also going to see interestingly enough by the way the town of Laodicea mentioned it's a sister town right right a few miles away okay Gnosticism first of all Gnosticism per se was not uh, it, it was kind of a loose collection of things that kind of uh, changed with time it wasn't a really tight you know structured uh, belief system it had general characteristics but it changed with time it kind of absorbed false teachings from just about everywhere but generally uh this is kind of roughly what uh, they begin to uh, settle on in gnosticism first of all and this is common in eastern religions even today by the way god is good matter is wicked evil okay well that's he can't therefore come in contact with matter with 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 the world okay and so in order to protect god from the bad stuff they have these orders of angels in between god and the physical world kind of to shield them you understand if there's any communication between god and the and the earth or the physical things it goes through these guys and then back again and of course as the angels get closer to god the more holy they are and the closer they get to the earth the more unholy they are sounds reasonable doesn't it sounds great 
not in the Bible. Um, and so one of the results is, uh, here we are down here in this bad part, and it's not so much we're evil, but the, but the world is. And so uh, one of the solutions to our problem, we're in the midst of all this evil, is to uh, discipline ourselves, not to eat, not, not to touch. It's called asceticism, you know, to shield ourselves from all the bad stuff. Uh, in this system, Jesus is not God. He's one of these angels somewhere, probably near God, but not God. They also believed that uh, Jesus wasn't the Christ. The Christ was something else. And therefore, on the cross, the Christ didn't die. This Jesus did. And therefore, his death was just an ordinary death. But probably the most important uh, part was, and this is so typical of cults, um, they, they taught that you had to have this extra knowledge. Jesus wasn't enough, you see. It's very common even today, isn't it? You know, particularly secret societies, you know. That's why they got their name, Gnostics. It literally, the, the Greek word for to know is gnosis, and that's what it comes from. You have to have some kind of special wisdom. So you meet one of these guys on the street, you're a professing Christian, and they say, well, I hear you, I trusted Jesus. Well, you know, that's not enough. There's more, you know. So that's what my introduction was all about, okay? Let me, I'll tell you here right now, Jesus is all I need. We're going to sing that as a closing hymn. Christ is all I need. I love that hymn. That's it. Isn't that great? Isn't that simple? Praise God. So Jesus plus zero, if, if that's what you believe in, Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross and nothing else, that's the road to heaven. Jesus plus X, where X can be anything. You add something to Jesus, uh-uh, doesn't work. You're going to hell. It has to be Jesus and nothing else. Okay? So, um, it, it, it's, it's interesting that uh, it wasn't just prevalent in that day. Eastern religion has a lot of this uh, asceticism stuff, this kind of separation. Buddhism has it. Hinduism has it. They start with themselves and they say, you know, uh, they don't call it sin, but we have these desires, you know, and, and they're not good. So the way to get around it is to control ourselves, you know deny ourselves and the extreme form of course is separation you know you go up into a monastery or something like that it's all self uh okay so before we get into the uh positive teaching of this let's just look at the clues that we have in the letter to show that that's what paul was addressing for example chapter one verse nine for this reason we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Well, you say, well, that's not unusual. Well, it's the emphasis of the letter, knowledge. And what Paul is saying here, knowledge, you want knowledge? You need the knowledge of God. You want some special knowledge? It's to know Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the special knowledge. No more, no less. And uh, he continues in that in chapter 2. Verse 2, uh, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge. He's going to talk about a mystery here using the words of the Gnostics of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. You see that? He's saying that the special knowledge that we need is nothing more than knowing God, knowing Christ. And that's it. 
And then the next verse, in whom, that is the Lord Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Isn't that great? Uh, verse 8. Now, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He's addressing Gnosticism there, you see. The basic principles... Um, I just finished reading a couple of books on philosophy. It's very interesting. It gets really confusing after a while, let me tell you. But the one thing they all have in common from, from Plato on to the modern-day philosophers is the, the, the mistake they make is they begin with themselves and they say, now starting here and all the things I can understand and learn just by observing life and thinking, I can arrive at the knowledge of all truth. You understand that? That's the opposite of this. Okay? Because it don't work. You need this. God speaks to us from outside through this book. And here he tells us the truth. And if he had not spoken, we would have never gotten there. And that's, that's the problem with philosophy. And so that's what he's talking about, the basic principles, you see. That's what they, that's what they did. They tried to teach them, look... And Plato would do this. You read Plato. He goes on and on with all these basic arguments about this and that and therefore this. Now you put those together and therefore this is true and so on. It takes years, you know, to wade through all that stuff. And when it's all said and done, the conclusion is I need to try to be a good person. Really, that's, that's basically it. And he's saying, no, that's, that's not it. Uh, we see it again in verse uh, 16. This is talking now about the asceticism. You know, you don't do this and you don't do that. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind there it is again and then uh, finally verses uh, 20 through 23 of chapter 2 therefore if you died with christ from the basic principles of the world why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations do not touch do not taste do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom don't they Sure they do. In self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. I like that last line. You know, the more you tell yourself, I'm not going to do it, the more you want to. That's what he's saying. Now, what's interesting, if you read the letter, like I said, you'd see Laodicea mentioned in here several times. Because this teaching was just as strong at Laodicea right down the road. What's interesting is at this time right now, so they're, they're toying with this idea of, you know, self-denial, you know. 30 years later, John is going to write the book of Revelation and he talks about the church at Laodicea. They're not uh, depriving themselves anymore. They've gone the route of self-gratification. In fact, what do they say? I am rich and increase in much goods and have need of nothing. Isn't that interesting? The more they tried to deprive themselves, they finally gave in and just uh, uh, fed the flesh instead. So Paul was right there. Okay. Um, now, before we get into uh, the section, I'm going to look at three sections here this morning. We're going to show the sufficiency of Christ. But uh, 
I should at least say something about this before we get into it. I, some of you know probably there's a very close parallel between the book of Ephesians and Colossians. Did you know that? Yeah, some people are nodding your head. Um, and so we're not going to focus on those passages. Not that uh, you already learned them from Ephesians. The differences are, are what's interesting. Studying the parallel passages between Colossians and Ephesians, you see uh, how the Lord through Paul emphasized the different truths. In Ephesians, you have the church as the central theme. Here, Christ is the central theme. I'll just tell you, uh, because we're not going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 is mostly the practical section, and it parallels closely Ephesians. I'll tell you, if you're really interested, first of all, I'll tell you four parallels. And, uh, the first one is actually Colossians 1. You can write these down if you want. Uh, Colossians 1, 25 through 26 is parallel with Ephesians 3, 4, and 5, and 9, and 10. And it's the subject of the mystery. Uh, the second parallel is in Colossians 3, 9, and 10. It's about the old and the new man. And it parallels Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Third uh, parallel is Colossians 3, 18 through 22. And it's the section you're familiar with in Ephesians. Husbands, wives, children, and servants. Same order. And that's Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 6. And finally, relationships in general is Colossians 3, 8, 13, and 16 through 17. And those parallel Ephesians 4, 31, 32, and 5, 19, and 20. You can... Read those sometime. They're not, they're definitely not word, word for word. It's wonderful to study them. It's like studying the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because, you know, people say, oh, well, they say the same thing. No, they don't. When you con- com- compare parallel passages between those, you begin to see the emphasis that each book has in painting Christ. And, and in Matthew, Christ emerges as the king. In Mark, as the servant. And in Luke, as the perfect man. And then, of course, in John, as God. It's a similar thing here. But uh, we're going to focus on <clears throat> Paul addressing this heresy of Gnosticism. And the, the main point he's going to make here is <clears throat> Christ is all I need. Jesus is enough. Okay? So his, uh, he's going to do it from three points of view. And the first one is, we'll call it the sufficiency of Christ, his deity. Okay? And that's in... Uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Let's just read this. <clears throat> Colossians 1, 15. He is the image <clears throat> of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Wow. Okay. I'm going to take it a little section at a time here. First, uh, he is the image of the invisible God. 
uh, <clears throat> here it means that Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. Remember, uh, as Jesus said himself in the Gospel of John, no man has seen God at any time. He told Moses, you, you can't see me. You, you wouldn't survive, first of all, but God is not physical. So how can we know God? <clears throat> if he reveals himself to us, some way where we could see him well how can he do that well the incredible thing is he became a man that's incredible and he lived a life among us and when you look at the life of jesus you see the life of god if god were to become a man and live and walk and talk he would be jesus in fact he was jesus isn't that cool i mean think about it god is he's infinite and he's eternal you can't see god You'd have to be God to see and understand him. Okay? But the wonderful, and it's not an accident that he was able to become a man so we can understand him. We were created in his image. You understand? So that he could become a man and we could see him. And just listen to Jesus and you're hearing God speak. See him act. See him interact with people. There he is. That's God right there. And so you see all the things you couldn't otherwise see. His mercy, his love, his truth. His patience, his anger, his love. We could go on and on. <clears throat> These attributes that we talk about, you see them lived out in a person. That's wonderful. You see, he's the image of the invisible God. That's what it means. <clears throat> so he's not only God, but within the Godhead, he is the person who communicates God to us. That's why it's called the Word in John chapter 1. That really strange word, the Word. People read and they go, what? Why is he called the word? Well, I'm speaking right now. You're hearing words. Those words are communicating to you the thoughts up here that you can't see. Okay? I, I'm thinking something. Now, if I just stood here like this. Yeah, no. John's back there shaking his head. He can't figure it out. I don't blame you, John. I have to speak words, you see. Words express our thoughts so other people can see and understand that well that's a wonderful choice to describe god the son he is the word of god he expresses reveals god to isn't that wonderful to us man that's great so that's what he's talking about here the image of the invisible god uh, no look this is no angel okay angels don't, don't go around expressing god they're created beings <clears throat> okay uh for example here's some other passages uh, John says at the beginning of his gospel, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has revealed him. And actually, it's a better word. Literally, it says he has explained him. That's so cool. He ex he's explained God to us by living. And, and in his words, too. Uh, Jesus said later to Philip, you know, he who has seen me has what? Seen the father. Yeah. In Hebrews, it says about Jesus, he is the express image, strong words of his person. And of course, uh, as we said in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Let's make that clear, okay? Jesus is God. And then later, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Man, that's Emmanuel, God with us. Okay. We're off to a roaring start here. The image of the invisible God. Next, the firstborn over all creation. Uh, firstborn here 
since you have the word over, he's not talking about time. In other words, he was born first. It's, it's, a, it's a word that means the preeminent one, like the firstborn son. He is the highest over. That's the idea. All creation. Talking about his position. Well, that's, that's interesting that he's the highest over creation. But who created? Well, he's going to answer that question next. Listen to this. By him, all things were created. You can stop right there. Would that leave anything out? All things. By the way, you're going to notice that the word all is, is probably the key word to this whole section here. All, all, all. All things were created by him. In case you didn't get that, he says, uh, all things that are on earth. In case you didn't get that, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Why do you insert that? Well, he's addressing this hierarchy of angel idea where Jesus is in there somewhere. Paul says, no, 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 no. All, all beings, visible and vis- invisible, he created them. Okay, he's not one of them. All things were created through him. He's the agent. And I love this. And for him. Okay? Why did God create anything? Well, he created you not so you could go off and have a good time and enjoy yourself. He created you for himself. That's why you're here. Okay? You want a purpose for life? There it is. You were created for him. To know him, to love him, to serve him. Okay, uh, and he is before all things. Again, that's not time. It doesn't mean he existed before all things, although he did. But it means, again, preeminence, priority, position. Another uh, incredibly strong statement, in him all things consist. Notice again, not some, all, some things, all things. In him all things consist. Literally hold together, that's the idea. Now, uh, I'm half of a physicist. And uh, I used to love studying the laws of physics. You start with F equals MA, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. And it's so cool because it's so um, uh, reliable, you know. You can write these laws out. You can go into the laboratory. You can do some experiments. And sure enough, just like the equation said, that's what it does. Well, I've, I've gotten saved since then. And I realize these things we call laws are really this verse right here. In Jesus, all things consist. That's, that's the laws. You see, the idea of laws is <clears throat> God created everything, everything physical, and then he somehow set, the, set these like internal laws in place, and then he just went away, and now it's kind of like a clock that you wind up, you know. Everything obeys these laws as if they understood them. You know, that's not, that's not right. He holds everything together, okay? So I don't care what force or field you're studying, you're seeing the Lord Jesus Christ consistently holding things together, reliably, predictably, praise God, okay? <laughs> We'd be in a terrible strait if, if uh, he had decided to reverse gravity tomorrow, okay? That's not some law out there, okay? That's Jesus. You're seeing the hand of Jesus there. That's what that's saying. In him, all things hold together. Einstein died trying to come up with what he called the unified theory. To, as of today, there are w- what we consider to be four forces. The first one we've been talking about, gravity. It's a force, right? I'm not going to drop a book. You get the idea. If I, if I held it up here, it'd go that way, right? Because the, of the force between the earth and uh, in that book. The next is the electromagnetic force. You used to it with magnets, kids, right? 
Line the opposite poles of a magnet, two magnets to each other and they go together. Or you line the same poles up, they push apart, right? That's electromagnetic force. Uh, then there are two forces within the atom, the weak and the strong force. And uh, they've really scratched their heads trying to explain these things because uh, in, an, in the nucleus of an atom, you have all these protons. They're all positively charged. Well, they should be like those uh, same poles of a magnet. They should be pushing each other apart, but they don't. In fact, they come together and they don't understand that. And so they call this the nuclear or the strong force. And they've come up with all these theories and uh, uh, supposed um, elementary particles that are exchanged between the protons and all this nonsense. Well, here's the answer right here. Okay? In Jesus, all things hold together. He's holding the atom together in its core. He's a pretty big God, isn't he? You think about how many atoms there are. <laughs> Woo! Okay. Uh, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, there's that all things again, by the way, you start to notice that, uh, that in all things he may have the preeminence. God singles out the church here, and even there, Christ is the head. Uh, notice it says he is the beginning. That's bad grammar. The beginning's long gone. It, it happened a long time ago. But interestingly, it doesn't say he was the beginning. It says he is the beginning. And when now we get back to John 8. Jesus said, before Abraham was... Okay, you're thinking that that's before Abraham. You're familiar with that time? Well, theoretically anyway, right? Way back then. Before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> I can't say that. Only God can say that. That's what he's saying here. I was talking with a brother about this wonderful phrase in Revelation uh, we were talking about the other night. Jesus describes himself this way. He says, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. Past, present, and future at the same time. Okay? And really, I'm glad it's that way. It better be that way. Okay? Uh, I was illustrating it uh, the other night. <clears throat> I'm talking to you right now in this moment of time. But not anymore because that moment's gone. Now I'm talking to you in this one. I'd like to go back to that moment, but I can't. It's irretrievably past. Okay? That moment that I said that statement a while ago, you're not going to be able to enter it ever again. It's lost. Okay? I'm physically right here. I'm not here and back there. Okay? I can't be. I'm either here or there. Uh, five minutes from now is not here yet, and I've got to wait five minutes for it to get here. And so do you. Imagine if God were like that. Huh? You know, as we're tapping his foot, okay, we got another 10 minutes to go yet. You know, that's not God. He's not bound by time. Time is something he created for us. We're, we're very puny, okay? We exist in one place at one time. <laughs> God's not like that. He, he is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Praise God. He inhabits eternity. That's our God. That's Jesus. Uh, and then verse 19 now. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That's too bad. Always watch for those italicized words in your Bible. You see them there? It says, it pleased 
the father that that's italicized in him all the fullness should dwell and bill of course comments on in his commentary too if you, if you don't don't have to believe me go go read uncle bill's commentary that's an unfortunate uh inclusion there they thought it would make more sense in the english well that's too bad it was written in greek literally it says the fullness was pleased to dwell in him talking about the fullness of god and in case you have any question about it look over at chapter 2 and read with me verse 9 for in him dwells all the fullness of the godhead bodily you see any italics there uh-uh that's right because there aren't any that's what it's saying and that's what it's saying back here in chapter 2 unfortunately they added those english words it's as if god said you know, it'd be nice if uh, Jesus was God. I think I'll make him so. That's what it sounds like. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. No. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead body. You can't put any stronger than that. Everything that there is about God and that can be is in Jesus. That's what he's saying. Jesus is fully God. And then finally, and by him to reconcile, and here it is again, all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Boy, what a, what a contrast. Now, this great one we've been talking about, this almighty God, the blood of his cross. What a phrase to describe him, huh? The blood of his cross. But there it is. And that's how he reconciled all things to himself. He created all things. He's before all things. He's the head of all things. And he even reconciled all things. Okay, notice there's no room for anybody else when we're done here, okay? Uh, who would you add to this list? If you, if you did, where would you put them? What would they do? Where would you fit in here? What could you do that Jesus uh, hasn't done? <laughs> no room, you understand? Jesus plus zero. It's Jesus, 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 that's it. I remember um, I was visiting one of the uh, young young women at the uh, Acts Bible study in the Acts house in Berkeley with Noad, and uh, tried to share the gospel with her. And she had uh, been raised in a typical church where you know you you do good things, and and you get saved, or you or you, or you get to heaven, or at least you hope you do. You know you really never know when you've done enough. And so I, I just did a little math game with her. I said, well, but she says, I need Jesus too. And so I said, well, how much is Jesus and how much is you? She started at 50-50. She wanted to be fair about it. You know, she didn't want to overload Jesus. So it was half Jesus and half her, okay? But as we begin to go through the scripture and she began to see her sin and the greatness of Christ, I asked her again, well, then it became 60-40, 60% Jesus and 40% her. We got up to 90-10, but she would not let go of that 10% that she felt she had to contribute. That's the difference between heaven and hell, okay? You think about that if you're here this morning, and with you, it's Jesus plus something, uh-uh. It's got to be 100% Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. He did it all. And by trusting and resting in his finished work and putting your life completely into his hands you're saved okay okay the second point that uh, paul talks about he's already he's done as far as i'm concerned in fact the first phrase okay but he's really going to make sure that he's clear on this so the
The second point we'll call the sufficiency of Christ, and that's our position in him. The first was the sufficiency of Christ, his deity. This one is the, the sufficiency of Christ, our position in him. Beginning with uh, chapter 1, verse 28. He says, Him we preach, that is the Lord Jesus, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man, and here it is, perfect, in Christ Jesus. Wow. In Christ. You can talk about perfection all you want. There are a lot of songs, you know, about typically romantic, you know, the guy singing about the girl that's perfect or the girl singing about the guy that's perfect. And then they get married and they get divorced, you know, six months later. It's all in theory. Isn't it great to, to be able to know that in Christ we are perfect? Do you know that anything less than perfection, we couldn't be in heaven? If there's any flaw, forget it. Okay. What does it say in Hebrews? He has perfected forever those that are being sanctified. Man. Now you may not feel like it, but that, because of your practice, but that's your position and that's what counts. Okay? Praise God. In the sight of God, in Christ, we are perfect. Okay? What are you going to add to that? <laughs> you can't get any better than that. In fact, if you disturb that, you mess it up. Okay, there's only one way to go, and that's down. We're perfect in Him. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3. We, we read this earlier. I love this. <clears throat> He's hitting on this wisdom, this knowledge idea the Gnostics had. Talking about Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to learn some new things? Learn about Jesus. I never get tired of worshiping Jesus, do you? You know, we learn something every Sunday, every breaking of bread. It doesn't get worse, it gets better, doesn't it? And, and that's on this side of heaven where we have distractions, we have these physical bodies, you know? What's it going to be like in heaven? We could ask Bill right now. I'll tell you. And he'd say something like, the half has not been told you. He used to say that. The, the millionth of a percent has not been told you. Okay. <clears throat> I love that. In, in whom are hidden all the treasures. Notice he uses that word. He doesn't just say in whom are hidden all wisdom and knowledge. Treasures. Real riches. You know? <clears throat> the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> okay. Um, verse uh, 10. Chapter 2. And you are complete in Him. We sing that song. <clears throat> complete in Him. Who was the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The key phrase here is in Christ again, in him, in him, in him. And we're not going to go through every little phrase. A lot of this is like Romans 6. But what he's talking about here is the, the old nature and the new nature. The Gnostics said, okay, the problem is our desires. All we've got to do is control our desires. You know, we're okay. And they go to extremes. They go up on a mountaintop, you know, and shut the door. <laughs> and now they're trapped inside with their desires. <laughs> and now the problems really start. Well, you can try New Year's resolutions and uh, turning over a new leaf and all that. 
But uh, look, God did it the right way. He took the old man and he crucified him with Christ. All right. And then on top of that, he gave us a new person who loves the things of God, who loves this word, who loves him, who wants to please him. You're not going to go down to the, go down to the store and buy that or go to a yoga class and learn it. OK, only God can do something like that. That's what he's talking about. We're complete. I love that. We're complete in him. OK, he's God. He's done everything. He's worked our salvation. And now in him, we're complete. What can you add to that? <laughs> nothing. Jesus plus nothing. OK, then um, finally, he talks about the sufficiency of the cross. And he does that in two places. Back chapter 1, verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. There's a couple of things here. First of all, um, notice the words. He uses a very graphic, literal words here. Blood, body, death. That's because um, a lot of the Gnostic teaching later came that Jesus never really died. Okay, so he's teaching it's a very clear, literal death. And what did that death accomplish? Well, look at the contrast. Uh, to begin with, we were, verse 21, alienated, enemies, and uh, described with wicked works. That's pretty dark, huh? Look at the transformation of the cross here. Afterwards, and I love this, to present you. It's like Jesus brings you and sets you in front of the throne of God. You know, he presents us. That's the picture. You were a mess before. After the cross, Jesus cleans you all up and he, and he brings you and he presents you before a holy God. And you can stand there without fear. Because we're holy, blameless, and above, above reproach. And a key phrase at the end, we're not just holy, blameless, and above reproach. We're holy, blameless, and above reproach where? In the, in the verse here, in his sight. You got that? It's one thing to be holy, blameless, and above reproach in the sight of people. That's not hard to do, by the way, is it? You can fake people out pretty pretty easily. This is in the sight of God, okay? What are you going to add to that? Can you improve on that? <laughs> no. There's nothing left to do. Praise God. Okay, then the second passage. I love this second passage. It's so it's it's almost like painting a picture. It's in chapter two, verse thirteen. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it by the way notice that last phrase again he's bringing in those principalities and powers the levels between god and earth that they kind of pictured okay so as he triumphed over 
all of those guys. Well, there's an unseen drama. It took place at the cross. Nobody saw it happen. But Paul brings it to view here, and it's a beautiful picture. He talks about this, uh, in my version, it said uh, the handwriting of requirements. It's literally a certificate of debt. That's literally what it is. And uh, everybody in this room had or has one of those. Okay? I like, it's handwritten. It's the debt you owed God. That's what it is. It's your sin. Okay? It's, it's the laws that you and I have broken. It's like um, having a specially written out just list of the things that you have to pay for to God. Your list doesn't look like mine. Your certificate of debt is different from mine. Okay? As I I read this, I thought about um, one of the first outside jobs I ever had. Uh, Back in the 60s, I used to work at the Oakland Army Terminal. And uh, there was a fellow that worked there. He was a member of some scientific society or something. They had about 250 members. And they wanted to do something special for them. They wanted to give them one of these little, you know, eight and a half by 11 or eight by 10 parchments that they could put in glass and put up on their wall to indicate that they were members of this society. Okay. So it was, re- looked really cool. They had a, a 250 of them printed up. Uh, you know, so and so is a member of blah, blah, blah. And then there was a space for their name and they wanted to make it special. They didn't want it just to have it printed in there. They wanted somebody to write in old English everybody's name. So he had 250 of these documents and he'd heard that I'd had art in high school. So this guy obviously was assigned to go out and get this done cheaply. <laughs> and so he, he uh, on, on a whim, he happened to ask me one evening at work. He says, by the way, you ever, have you ever done any calligraphy? And I lied and said, uh, yes. <laughs> this is before I was a Christian, okay? <laughs> I knew what it was and it, it seemed to me like it should be pretty easy to learn, you know. So uh, he says, well, I got a deal. I'll give you two bucks for every one of these uh, little things. You just write it out. I got to where I was doing about 20 an hour. That's 40 bucks. That was 40 bucks an hour. I mean, that was incredible. Okay. And I, no, and I did. The, the end of the story is I did it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went off and I practiced and practiced and got it. So they all slanted the same way, you know, and memorized the letters and everything. He was very happy when I got done and I was $500 richer. But each one, you see, they wanted, each one was special. It was handwritten, you know? And you could just see these guys put it up in their office, and there's their name, handwritten, you know? Wow, that's impressive. Well, that's what, that's what he's talking about, the certificate of debt, you see. Everyone in this room, a life of crime, a life of sin, written out, specially for you. And he says it was against us. That's not for us, okay? And, but he goes on to say it's contrary to us. It's bothersome. That's what he's saying. It's like a burden on us. This certificate of debt. We know that we owe to God. And we know it's going to have to be paid. It's like these adjustable rate mortgages, you know. You get the thing in the mail. Well, last month the rate was 10%. This month is 20. You know, and you go, ah. The thing about this particular certificate of debt is that not only did the interest grow, the principal grows. It, get, it gets bigger every day, every, every time we sin, you know. It's a terrible thing. 
Every lie, every time we get angry, gossip, malice, pride, deceit, immoral thoughts, failure to love God, unwholesome speech, unforgiving. We could go on, couldn't we? Can you imagine what each of our certificates look like written out by hand, you know? Against us and contrary to us. Well, I love the way it says it here. Uh, and when it talks about the Lord Jesus, it says he did three things with it. First of all, it says, um, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. That's a strong word in the original. Erased completely. Isn't that great? Uh, next it says, he took it out of the way. It's like you're sitting, you know, looking through the pages of this thing, all these charges against you, you know, and Jesus walks up and he says, here, let me take that. And, and it's gone. He just takes it away. Take, he took it out of the way. But now, we're talking about the justice of God. He can't just take that and drop it in the circuit or file. Okay? So he did a third thing with it. And this is what it says. It says he nailed it to his cross. Wow, what a graphic picture, huh? We know about other nails when they nailed the Lord Jesus to the cross through his hands and his feet. But here is an unseen hand. It's the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As he takes up the mallet and he takes that your certificate and he puts it up on his cross and he nails it there. Because when he gets up in there, now he's charged with that. It's his debt. That's what he's saying. They used to do that in the uh, days of the crucifixion. Often they would put the charge on the cross. So people that, that were curious enough to walk by some guy bleeding to death, they could read it and see what, exactly what he'd done, you see. Well, that's what Jesus did. He took your certificate, your list, your unique handwritten certificate of debt, and he nailed it to the cross. And as he's hanging there, he's saying, I'm charged with this. These are my crimes. These are my sins. He'd never done any sin. And there, uh, as we sing, Jesus paid it all. Notice verse 13. It says, having forgiven you all trespasses. All. Remember that word all? We've been seeing it everywhere, haven't we? All. Jesus paid it all. We quoted the hymn last week. I'll quote it again. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross. That, that's scriptural. That's what it says here. And I bear it no more. Okay. Jesus plus zero equals eternal life. Is that what you've got? Does that describe you? We're going to sing in a minute, Christ is all I need. That's my prayer for everyone here. That's what you're resting on, Jesus and nothing else. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we worship you this morning. Lord, we can't wait for eternity because we know it's going to take that long to praise you and thank you for all that you have done. You've done it all. Now we simply come, put out our empty hands, and we say, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe it. I trust in you and nothing else. I give you my life. Lord, we pray for anyone here who maybe has heard these things before but has never gotten off that other something to trust for their salvation, that this might be the day when they let go of all else and hang on to nothing but Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask it in his precious name. Amen.